Our first reading comes to us from the book of Exodus, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it, so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, rejoice, for His love is strong, and His mercies never-ending. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, rejoice, for His love is strong, and His mercies never-ending. All I have needed have provided great is your faithfulness oh lord your mercy is new every morning great is your faithfulness that all the people sing praise the lord oh my soul rejoice for his love strong and his mercies never ending praise the Lord oh my soul rejoice for his love is strong and his mercies never ending from the beginning you have been with me great is your faithfulness downcast your love is steadfast great is your faithfulness and all the people sing praise the Lord oh my soul rejoice for his love is strong and his mercies never ending praise the Lord oh my soul rejoice for Oh 
Lord God Almighty, my soul will bless your name. Holy, holy, Lord God Almighty, your word.
Lord, I trust in you. Help me trust you more. For your grace is deep and your love is sure. Even in the valley dark, all my hopes restored. Lord, I trust in you. Help me trust you more. All your goodness, all your mercy will follow me all of my days. And I will worship in your house, oh Lord, for you are always good all your goodness all your mercy will follow me all of my days and I will worship in your house oh Lord for you are good you're always good Lord, I trust in you, help me trust you more, for your grace is deep, and your love is sure, even in the valley dark, all my hopes restored, Lord, I trust in you, help me trust you more, Lord, I trust in you help me trust you more lord i trust in you help me trust you more Our second reading comes to us from the book of Psalms, Psalm 95. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout for joy to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and raise a loud shout to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the caverns of the earth and the heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands have molded the dry land. Come, let us bow down and bend the knee and kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and sheep of his hand. Oh, that today you would hearken to his voice. Harden not your hearts as your forebears did in the wilderness at Meribah and on that day at Massa when they tempted me. They put me to the test, though they had seen my works. Forty years long I detested that generation and said, This people are wayward in their hearts. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. This is the word of the Lord. 
teach us to trust you, teach us to trust in you. Give us grace, give us grace to trust in you. Our third reading comes to us from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 5 through 26. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am He, the one who is speaking to you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Trinity Northside Sunday podcast. This is the first of what will be at least two podcasts where we together continue this journey through Lent, but now from a distance as we are home learning this new word that we've all heard, this social distancing that we've been encouraged to observe. We are trying to strike a balance between uh, not being fearful or anxious as a community in any way, but also being sober-minded and taking the threat of this virus seriously and really seeking to be good neighbors who care for the most vulnerable in our midst and doing that 
well. And so uh, what we plan on doing is is offering what would have been a Sunday sermon in person and doing that now here in a recorded format, which I admit is a strange thing to do and I'm sure is a, a unique way to receive that experience as well. It reminds me that virtual church, online church, is not the same thing. We need each other. And I feel that distance as I sit here in my office staring at a blank wall. I miss you all being there. I miss uh, being with you. And yet I'm grateful that we can continue together through this technology over the coming weeks. I'm eating a bit of humble pie, if I'm being honest, because if you've been around Northside, you know that I often will talk about the dangers of screens and of phones and how they keep us uh, distant from those we love, how they keep us inattentive from God and what's going on around us. And yet I am very grateful this week for technology, the way in which we can continue to journey through Lent, which is what we're doing. Our Lenten journey continues. Someone this weekend asked me, they said, so since church is canceled for two weeks, is Lent also canceled? <laughs> to which I replied, nice try, nice try. And so if any of you have similar ideas, um, I, I hate to disappoint, but we continue to journey. Lent is still upon us. And as a reminder, Lent really focuses on three things. This journey, we focus on prayer, on fasting, and on almsgiving. Those are the tradi traditional focuses of Lent, prayer and fasting and almsgiving. And what I love is that all three of those are things that we can continue to do in the privacy of our own homes, with our roommates, with our families, wherever we may find ourselves. And so it's something I've committed to do. Um, take prayer, for example. I continue to keep you all in prayer and would ask you to do the same for our church family, for our neighborhood, for our communities. One thing I've done is I've begun a private prayer list where anyone in the parish who has a specific prayer need, I'm committing to pray for you in morning prayer every day. And so shoot me an email if you'd like to be on that list, trip at atltrinity.org, trip with two Ps, T-R-I-P-P at atltrinity.org. And I would love to pray for you, for your family, anything that is specifically a source of, of concern or anxiety or fear in this unknown season. Um, let, let me uh, join you in that and we can together uh, lift that up to the Lord. Um, another way to pray is to pray the daily office. If you've been with us since the fall, you remember back in the fall, we began what we called the daily office project, which was an attempt to say, let's create our homes as places of prayer. Let's intentionally model our life together at home after the way that we live life together as a church family. And so I would encourage you to do so. If you have the capacity, pray morning prayer, pray evening prayer. There are ways to do that. We have the daily readings on our website, atltrinity.org. There are ways to join with a community of virtual prayer, something like the Trinity Mission. You can go to the Trinity Missions website and you can pray with them every day, morning and evening prayer. So many ways to continue this posture of prayer. Similarly, you have to eat at home and so you can fast at home. You can find ways to continue to resist that urge to give in to all of our desires, which is something that's very real in a time of confusion or uncertainty. We want to numb our fears and our anxieties. And so resist the urge to root in and distract yourself with extra screen time, with extra Netflix, with extra eating, whatever it may be that makes us feel good in the moment, but actually makes us weak spiritually. So stay connected to the Lord 
and to those that you love. And fasting is a way to do that. And then lastly, I would say, make sure you give generously. We have a real fear in a moment like this, I think, of scarcity, of thinking we won't have enough. Am I going to be cared for? Am I going to be provided for? And so we begin to shut down, shut down our lives, and we gather all of our resources, and we stockpile food, and we do all these things to make sure we're cared for when what we actually need to do is to say, how do I maybe gather more than I need so that I can turn outward and say, to my neighbor who is vulnerable and doesn't have enough, come and join us for a meal. How do I intentionally give when I'm tempted to shut down? How do I actively give my life away in a season like this? And so I would encourage you to do that as well. These are ways that we continue this Lenten journey as the people of God. And so what we're going to do, we're not going to try and replicate a full Sunday service in any way, but I would like to pull in a few of the parts of our time together that we would normally do. And so each week I'm going to begin the sermon uh, by reading the collect of the day. And it's something that we can pray every single day of this week as a way to, to pray together as the people of God. And so we'll do that. And then I'll read our sermon text, which this week is Romans chapter 5. And then I'll offer reflections on it as a form of a sermon and then close with prayer. And so let's begin maybe with a moment of silence to quiet our own hearts and our minds and turn them towards the Lord. And then I will begin us in prayer as we pray the collect for the third Sunday in Lent. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Look with compassion upon the heartfelt desires of your servants and purify our disordered affections that we may behold your eternal glory in the face of Christ Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Our reading today comes from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the first thing I would say in reflection on this is Paul right away drops a pretty big theological word, and the word is justification. 
justification. And I think some of you who are listening have spent time diving into this sort of thing. You really love words like justification. Your ears perk up and you lean in a bit when you hear that word. You think this is going to be fun. This is my sort of thing. And yet others of you are tempted right now to turn this off and go do something else. It's your cue uh, to look and see how much money you've lost over uh, the week in the stock market or to see how many people have coronavirus in Atlanta. <laughs> Whatever it may be, you want to check out and say, this is not on my mind. This is not my thing. And I would say this, um, for those of you who are really into something like justification, let's manage your expectations. This is not a seminary lecture. This is a podcast sermon reflection on Romans 5. We will not be parsing any Greek words. And yet to the others of you, I would also encourage you to stick with me here and press in. I think there is something powerful here that we need to hear this weekend. And if we have ears to hear it, I believe the Lord will speak to us through this reading. It's an important word. So, I think so often, discussions in the church on a topic like justification, one of the things I've noticed is they almost always begin with the beginning. They focus on the beginning of our life with God. That's where justification starts. And that's a good thing. It's a good place to begin there. But here's a point I want you to sit with. It is not a good place for us to end. Justification is not just a beginning of life with God. So we should ask ourselves, what does it mean to be justified? What does it mean to be seen by God as a broken sinner in need of healing, to be forgiven and reconciled to him in his perfect love? That is the stuff we're talking about when we talk about justification. And Paul speaks really powerfully about this in the second half of our reading. He reminds us that the love of God is shown in Jesus, and it's not based on our goodness or how deserving we are of that love. Think about that for a minute. God is not obliged. He's not morally moved to help us because you and I are really significant or that we're really important. And one of the most famous lines we have in the whole Bible that Paul gives us, he says this today, but God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so I really only have two points to make today, but let's sit with both of them. And first is this, like Paul just said, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. That sounds like something straight out of Sunday school, easy to gloss over, easy to uh, nod your head to in affirmation and yet quickly move on from. But we should never move on from this. The fact that Christ died for us while we were sinners should forever mystify us. It should humble us. We have to remember God does not love us based on our education, on our salary, on the car that we drive, the house that we live in, whatever it may be. God's love sees through all of our own illusions of our own grandeur, our own importance, and God sees us as we truly are, that we are weak, we are fearful, and we're afraid. And in so many ways, that fact has bubbled to the surface over the past week or two, hasn't it? I think of the well-known story Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18, where he illustrates a similar point. If you remember the story, you have, on the one hand, a Pharisee. The Pharisee lists off all of his accomplishments, all the reasons why he should be loved by God. He says, I am not like other men, not like thieves or adulterers, and I'm not like this tax collector over here. He says, I fast, I tithe, I do all the things in Lent that I'm supposed to do. 
If he were living in our day, he might say something like that. And yet on the other hand, picking up in verse 13, it says this, the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. And so if we're talking about justification in a sense of it being our reconciliation with God, our re-entry into his family and into a way of peace, we have to see it is rooted in our humble acceptance of our weakness, of our weakness. And I think on the one hand, that is something we never move on from. We always must realize that we are weak and in need of his mercy. As many of you know, I'm deeply appreciative of the Eastern Christian tradition. And one of the things they pray in the East that's really the foundation of their prayer life is something that they call the Jesus prayer, a very simple prayer based on these stories from the Gospels where they simply say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's what they call a a breath prayer, a breath prayer, kind of a way to take Paul's challenge seriously when he says to the church to pray without ceasing, to pray without ceasing. And so praying that prayer is a way to, in every moment of every day, cultivate this life of prayer with God. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Breathing that truth in, breathing that truth out. Maybe even more simply, just that reminder that we breathe in Jesus and we breathe out mercy. Jesus, mercy. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Guys, this is the most foundational reality of our entire lives. We never move on from it. Jesus is Lord. We are forever in need of his mercy. And I think we know this. We know this theologically, intellectually, maybe abstractly. Yet there are moments in time, seasons of life that do bring this to the surface. And we have to wrestle with this truth in ways that we maybe are prone to forget. And I think you and I can probably, in our own personal stories, count on our hands a handful of times in which that need for God's mercy, that reality of the brokenness of our lives and of our world has been felt acutely in your own story. Maybe it's the untimely death of a family member, the death of a close friend, maybe your own battle with sickness and disease, ways which in which your, your broken desires maybe have caused you damage. Maybe they've destroyed relationships that you cherish and love greatly. Or maybe that happened to you because of someone else's brokenness. So those are personal ways. But I I think of it this week at a, at a global level. I'm sure you have as well. These moments in our lives when we feel our collective weakness, we feel our frailty as a people. I think for me, one of the first times I really remember feeling that would be 9-11. And I'm in my mid-30s, and so this will kind of date me to where I was, uh, I think I was in 10th grade when when 9-11 happened. And it introduced into my childhood this kind of loss of innocence, this this kind of global anxiety that in so many ways has never left 
many of us have grown up with this, this sense of fear that always lives just beneath the surface and never goes away. Uh, we felt it in 2008 with the financial crash. It's hard for us to not be mindful of the fact that in many ways, this week feels like another one of those moments. The very fact that I'm talking into a microphone in a private room and we're not gathered is something that is unique, unprecedented in our life together as a church. It's hard to ignore that sense that many of us have a fear, a fear of the unknown, that we are are pressed in a profound way by the reality of our frailty, by this sense of helplessness that we feel, a helplessness of powers that are greater than us, in this case, death and disease. Now, at this point, I really do, I hesitate to offer a quote that references World War II out of the fear of overstating or escalating the moment we find ourselves in. And yet, I think it's really powerful. The sentiment here is a very good reminder. If you are a member at Trinity, you will have seen this in the member email that went out earlier this week on Thursday evening. Uh, But I want to mention it here again. It's really an important word for us to sit with. C.S. Lewis, uh, who many of us know, uh, often quoted at Trinity, usually though for his his works of fiction, things like his Narnia books. Uh, He was also this sort of public-facing academic. He would give radio addresses to the nation. It was almost like Lewis was a bit of a moral compass for the British people in a time of confusion. And earlier in the week, I came across his words from 1939 in a piece that was titled Learning in Wartime. I'd recommend you go read the whole thing, but I just want to mention these, these two sentences specifically. Learning in Wartime. Lewis says this, I think it is important to try to see the present calamity in a true perspective. The war creates no absolutely new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent human situation so that we can no longer ignore it. It simply aggravates the permanent human situation so that we can no longer ignore it. And I think in some ways, if we substituted coronavirus or stock market crash for the word war, I think Mr. Lewis's words speak to us in a profoundly wise way. They speak wisdom into our situation in a way that I think we need to hear because there is nothing new about this week that was not in the world a week ago or a year ago or a hundred years ago, even a thousand years ago. We have just lived through an age, many of us for most of, if not all of our lives, we've lived in an age when it's easy to ignore these truths. It's easy to push these foundational truths off to the side. And yet, Paul says in Romans, just a few chapters from here, in chapter 8, he says, All creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. And so this week, we are reminded of things that are fundamentally true, that have always been true. Even if we find ways to forget it, you and I and creation itself, we are weak and we are in need of the mercy of God. And so what do we do? I think mindful of this in ways that a few weeks ago we could more easily ignore. What do we do now? I'll say this. It does not in any way discount or in any way discredit 
this reality, this diagnosis of our need and our brokenness, to let ourselves begin to reflect upon the effect of God's mercy in our lives, the effect of his mercy. So we can fully affirm and say, you and I are forever sinners in need of God's mercy. We are weak and we are sick and in need of his healing. And yet, on the other hand, we have to be able to say that healing is not entirely reserved for life after death. The healing power of God's mercy breaks into our world right here, right now, today, in this very moment, as you listen to these words, God's healing power is available to you. And so you and I must cling to that hope, must be joyful people who know the healing power of God, even when we are aware of our brokenness and the troubles in which we find ourselves. A few weeks ago, I quoted Julian of Norwich, who's one of my favorite writers. She was an English writer, actually the first woman to ever write in the English language. Um, But she was writing at the height of the Black Death. And her words, again, are so helpful and sobering for us. She said this, If there is anywhere on earth a lover of God who is always kept safe, I know nothing of it, for it was not shown to me. But this was shown, that in falling And rising again, we are always kept in that same precious love. I so deeply long for that to be true of my own life. And for us as a church family, for us as a church community around the world, whether we find ourselves falling or find ourselves rising, we are always hopeful because we know we are always kept in the precious love of God. And if we are always kept in his love, then there is a way to grow and to deepen in that life with God, even when circumstances, even when the realities and details of our lives are precarious, when they are perilous, when we find ourselves deeply troubled, you and I still stand and root ourselves in the grace of God. And so that's where I want to close. Second point, Paul says this, borrowing from his words in verse two, he says, there is grace in which we stand. Second point, verse two, there's grace in which we stand. I've talked about this before. Uh, I grew up in a Christian tradition uh, for which in many ways I'm so grateful. And yet I think on this point, they were afraid in some ways to acknowledge this, to press into this truth, because I think they were afraid that acknowledging that there's, there's grace and growth and maturity and development in our life with God somehow minimizes that first point. It's like they said, if we start to think we're strong, then we'll no longer rely upon the grace of God, or at least that's how the logic went. Yet I think there's a massive problem with this way of thinking because it leaves us, hear me on this, it leaves us justified but never transformed. Justified but never transformed. It's like we're diagnosed as sick, but we're never healed. It's less about God changing and renewing and healing us But it's more about simply getting us to a place of safety. Now, if you go all the way back, think back with me to childhood days. If you grew up in church, you can see this image. If we were in church, I was going to put it up on a screen. It's that idea of the the great chasm where you have uh, man on one side and God on the other in this huge pit. And there's no way to get from one side to the other until the cross comes in the middle and creates a bridge upon which you walk across. Remember this image? I think you have it in your mind. That is the dominant way in which we view justification, view our life with God. 
It's not about changing us. It's just about getting us to a place of safety. There's an author who I appreciate called James Wilhoyt. And he says this, he says, the cross seems to become a means of transportation rather than God's means of transformation. So it's transportation rather than transformation. Not about who you are in God. It's just about where you are or where you're going. And you see this pop up in all sorts of different ways over over the history of the church. I think of very famous examples, people like Martin Luther, uh, who really loved the book of Romans, and or at least he, he loved a, a particular interpretation of Romans. But Luther really loved this idea. I think we owe it to him in some ways for, for having received this. He would often speak of Christians as dunghills, dunghills adorned by God or covered in snow. And it's, it's a risky thing to do to, to take head on someone like Martin Luther. And so I say this with great respect and humility towards our brother in the Lord. And yet I think on this point, Martin Luther was one-sided in his understanding of grace and his understanding of mercy, because it's only half the picture. And I think if you only have half the picture, that has the potential to devastate our life with God. If we think it's just about where we're headed, or who Christ is and not who we are in Christ, then we miss a big part of the story, a big part of the good news of the gospel. It's like Luther got the diagnosis right, but he underestimated the power of the medicine, the power of God to transform us right here and right now. In verse five, Paul says, hope does not disappoint us. Why does he say that? Why does he say hope does not disappoint us? Well, he says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. God's love doesn't just wrap around us externally. It doesn't just cover us and leave us like a dunghill covered in snow. That's not what the grace of God does. That's not what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul says God's love is poured into the core of our being. That's his phrase, that it's poured into us. It penetrates to the deepest parts of our soul. So again, he says today in verse 6, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. That's that one side of this. But the other side of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that in the same breath, Paul says, we have peace with God, grace in which we stand. We have character. We have endurance. We have hope. And these are not native to us, but by the grace of God, we are actually transformed. We're healed in a way that this is meant to actually be true of us right here, right now. Not just the appearance of truth, but it's meant to be the real thing. If you read Paul's other letters, look elsewhere, 1 Corinthians especially, uh, you see this in Ephesians. Paul speaks of this transformation by using the language of imitation, imitation. And I've talked about this over the years in in different contexts, but often when we hear imitation, we have to remember that our, our first association is a negative one. We think imitation is a negative thing. Imitation is the, the stuff that's sold in, in a street market, an imitation Rolex, imitation Gucci. We think imitation is fake and superficial. It's all appearance without any substance, like dung covered in snow. But that is not Paul's vision of transformation. It's not his vision of imitation. In some way, when Paul says imitation, he he means for it to be the real thing. 
the real thing. New Testament scholar Richard Hayes, he says imitation is shaping our lives in accordance with the pattern of Jesus's self-sacrificing love. Shaping our lives in the pattern of Jesus's own love. And I think this is a shaping that is only possible by grace. It's only a work of God, a work of the Spirit, but it is very real. It begins right here and right now for you and for me. And if we don't open our hearts to this power of God, to this kind of transformation, the real danger here that we face, and this is important for us, the danger is you and I will not be rooted. And so we'll be rocked back and forth like a ship at sea in a storm without any anchor. And we'll be uprooted and unsettled in so many different ways. We'll be unmoored by the slightest disturbance. And we have to hear these words when we right now in our world face so many things that threaten to unmoor us and disturb us. Why is it that we're terrified when the stock market plummets and yet we're awash with relief when it surges right back? That should tell us something. Tell us something about where our hopes lie. And if we're constantly on this roller coaster, what happens is our faith is immature. Our faith will be surface deep. And what we need most deeply is to be transformed and healed in the core of our being. This isn't just so you and I feel better about our lives. It isn't just so we feel peaceful or at rest, but it's to make us bold. Guys, this is a time for the church to be the church. And you and I need courage. We need endurance. We need the character that Paul talks about so that we can go out and be the hands and feet of Jesus. And a sign of our immaturity in faith is our inability to care for anything or anyone other than ourselves. And if that's where we find ourselves today, we are in trouble because the church needs to be the hands and feet of Jesus. The world needs us right now to be deployed, to be out there being the hands and feet of Jesus, to be loving our neighbors and the least of those, the vulnerable in our families, in our communities, to show that we are rooted in something greater than our fear, that we're rooted in the transforming love of God. And so care about those in need. Like I said at the beginning, this isn't just covering our own backs, which is the temptation. That is the temptation in a moment like this to, to, to just stockpile and make sure we're okay. I saw this on the news today. Costco had record profits for the month of February. Why? Why is that? Well, it's because we're all terrified that we're not going to have what we need. I saw security camera footage of a grocery store in Australia that had a line out the door before they opened. And the second they opened, everyone pours in, climbing on top of one another, literally fighting their way to get a, a roll of toilet paper, scratching and clawing and elbowing and pushing. It's insanity. It's insanity. Now, I'm not saying to, to throw wisdom out the window. There is wisdom that invites us to have extra supplies on hand, uh, to be sober-minded, be, be wise with the moment we face. And I'm not discounting that. But, but here's the challenge, a very practical challenge to us as we close. Has it crossed our minds to buy more than we need, not so we have enough, but so that our neighbor has enough? What would it mean to, to, in some way, take a deliberate step today to counteract that temptation of self-preservation because that's a, a constant threat we, f- we face is this sense of scarcity that I'm not going to have enough. What if in times of financial uncertainty, 
when I think a very real temptation we face is to, to shut down our finances, to tighten up and make sure everything is safe and secure. What if you actually intentionally made a financial gift of generosity this week to someone in need, to someone facing severe trial and suffering in the, in the wake of this global virus? What would it mean to actually proactively push against that temptation towards scarcity and instead choose by our actions, not just our words, but by our actions to be people of generosity. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is what you signed up for. I heard Chris say it earlier this week in a meeting. He says, in moments like these, Christians are at our best. This is what we sign up for. And I think whether you've thought of it this way or not, when you were baptized, your baptism was a a commissioning. It was an enlisting of sorts. You said yes to this way of life. And I think the virtue and the habits of the spiritual life, the formation into Christ likeness we talk about at Trinity, it is not just for ourselves, but we store that up. We become these kinds of people so we can be sent out in seasons like this. This is what we sign up for. And I hope and pray that whatever sufferings we face, whatever trials we walk through in the coming weeks, it will make us more and more like Jesus. To be people who are so shaped into his likeness that just as he goes before us and shows us the way that you and I will do the same thing. That we will be his hands and feet. And so this week, take courage. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus who said, let not your hearts be troubled. And so we have nothing to fear. We are always safe in his kingdom. And so we press out boldly in faith. As we close, I'll leave us with these words from 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Father, with hearts rooted in your peace, rooted in the perfect love of God shown in Jesus, we come to you this week in faith and in trust, believing that you are with us and so we have nothing to fear. And not only do we have nothing to fear, but we have work to do. You invite us to be the hands and feet of Christ, to be a source of hope in the midst of darkness. And so send us out, Lord, we pray, to do the work that you give us to do, to love you and serve you, Through Christ our Lord. Amen. You are here, moving in our midst. I worship you. I worship you. You are here. Moving in this place, I worship you, I worship you. You are way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. You are way maker, miracle worker. Promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. 